Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have as my guest, Karen Manfier, who is the Global Customer Experience and Voice of the Customer Lead within Salesforce. She's a TEDx speaker, a three times best-selling author. And I also have Jill Robbins, who is a veteran, top-of-the-tree procurement professional. She's the founder of a fabulous business called Business Fierce. She's been in corporate America as a chief purchasing officer for the last 25 years. She's bought billions and billions of dollars worth of products and services, buildings, leases, you name it, and uh, little old me. So first of all, Karen, would you mind giving us one minute on your background, please? I started out in the exciting world of project management in a large telecommunications company. Doesn't that sound exciting? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, what I discovered is perhaps I enjoyed being with people a bit more than projects, especially if that it required sitting in front of your computer and not interacting with people for long periods of time to deliver. So that took me very quickly into sales and sales leadership followed by partner experience and customer experience. And now I'm fortunate to have the opportunity to spend time with customers and leaders all over the world, understanding the challenges they're trying to solve, what they're trying to disrupt, and really building a compelling vision and plan with them about how to get there. And the outcome of that is some of the thought leadership that you mentioned and and talking about some new topics like the future of work and how it's changing and and how we can also do some things to change our purchasing behaviors to lead to a more equitable future. Excellent. And Jill, same question. So I started out in customer quality assurance. So really interacting with customers with a small local airline. And then after 9-11, that airline quickly became bankrupt. And so I pivoted into the healthcare space, sourcing technology, and I found my niche. Then I went into consumer packaged goods, continued to excel into various indirect goods and services, R&D. I have done Lean Six Sigma, spent some time in business development, and I found my passion in collaborating with suppliers, finding innovative solutions. So I don't view purchasing as a tactical function. I really view it as strategic and enabling value and innovation and top-line growth for organizations. So, you know, procurement is on the cusp of truly transforming digitally. With the pandemic, it's really been highlighted. Where is the data with suppliers? How are they performing? Where are the products? You know, where are the subcontractors working? So I think the supply chain has really come to light. And then as part of Business Fierce, we are teaching suppliers who are selling to procurement, through procurement, into supply chain, how to effectively speak procurement's language rather than just, you know, vomit their their solution without knowing exactly what the customer needs without doing the proper homework. Excellent. Thank you. So today's topic is the future of work. But what I'd like to do is explore the theme of context and collaboration in this brave new world. So let's start out with you, Jill, talking about collaborating 
vendors collaborating with partners, collaborating with the customer, and making sure that the, the emphasis is on delivering the outcome that the customer is renting for as long as it's relevant. Um, mm-hmm. So can we kick off with your thoughts around um, how we need to collaborate uh, more effectively in the future? Yeah, you know, I think it, it starts with beginning with the end in mind and setting outcomes. Karen, early on, before we went live here, talked about autonomy. And it's about trusting. So building that trust, setting the right expectations. And it starts with the team. So you've got to have competent people sourcing and procuring your goods and services. And then that becomes an extension into your supply base. So having those joint collaboration meetings, getting the moose on the table, having those difficult discussions, because oftentimes what companies don't understand is your suppliers understand your processes better than some of your internal stakeholders do. They can see across your value chain, they can connect some of these fragmented pieces, and they are not blinded by the silos that often exist in these corporate conglomerates. Thank you for that. Karen, building on what Jill has just talked about, I'd really like to explore how partner experience and customer experience and voice of the customer play into this. Because what I see the best companies on the planet doing is listening to the raw, unvarnished, unfiltered conversations that customers and partners are having with them and tapping into that small data and putting it into the context of their real world. So if you'd like to build on that. Well, I think about outcomes are the new experiences. And one of the reasons I think that's so powerful as we're listening to customers and partners and employees and thinking about how to shape experience is that experience can feel a little squishy on the edges, right? What, I mean, what is an experience? What defines an experience? How much can I influence an experience? Most people can relate to outcomes. You know, it's something I can measure. It's something I can create. It's something I can build a plan around. And, you know, looking in the direction of feedback and using that as a source of innovation and deepening relationships, something that shows up is how frequently listening to unhappy customers and partners and employees is an always on source for innovation and for discovering some outcomes, right, that really matter. And these outcomes, by the way, don't have to be grand gestures. I'm starting to think and speak and work a lot in terms of what I call the five-minute fix. Because I think what happens is when we hear, you know, someone that's unhappy and then that unhappiness becomes a theme. And then we start thinking about, you know, all these statistical drivers that could potentially move the perception on this big theme. We end up with a five phase, $5 million, you know, 50 people kind of roadmap. And I think about, you know, how do we put the power back in the hands of our customer facing teams? And what could we do with five people, $5 in five minutes? Because I think the goodness is, progress. I think the goodness is participation. And I think the goodness in that also is people get to help create the outcome they're going to deliver and keep and build momentum very quickly. I'm going to build on that because I I see, obviously there was the human cost and we, we recognize that. 
But I think COVID is a blessing in disguise. I fundamentally believe it will fuel a renaissance because it's moved us forward in terms of digitization and remote working for by at least 10 years. It's also forced people to really be far more collaborative. And it's uncovered the dinosaur management and leadership, uh, which was all about command and control. People need a voice. And building on your own research, Karen, from your experience, the SHIFT project, one of the, the blinding flashes of the obvious, and I don't mean to diminish it, but it is bloody obvious, that a customer's success is determined by the customer's outcomes being achieved more than it is by having a fluffy experience. And the single biggest lever in all of that is the employee's experience and level of engagement because they're the ones touching the customer and they're the ones putting it into place. So it it strikes me that there has to be a shift in the way management, leadership, and investors think about the customer and how they drive behavior within the enterprise in order to ensure that they are serving the customer's outcome and helping them to be successful. Because if they don't, they're just going to be out-competed and they're going to go the way of the dinosaur. So Karen, uh, your response to that? Create choices. Because I think within that, what it says is you have a choice about the outcome that we're going to set you know, as our success. And we've got within that a series of choices about how we are going to deliver that outcome. Create choices inside of your own organization by putting the outcome out there as a tool to break down silos in your own organization to deliver on the outcomes. And I think what happens so frequently is when we're doing these deep listening activities, what starts to show up are constraints or what feels like constraints. And I think what we want to do is move toward we have a series of choices. Now, one of the choices certainly is that your customer feels like they can't get to the outcomes and so they exit. I think that's a a different conversation and that's a different kind of question than trying to design and tailor and move toward this ever-shifting experience. And I think, you know, we've all lived together over the past year, what it's like when the experiences that are available to us have a significant shift In lots of cases, we'll still stay put with companies where we can get to the outcomes, right? And so, you know, I think that that's more solvable and it puts you into a more short-term horizon where you can achieve and go to the next much more quickly, you know, as opposed to thinking about, you know, this experience thing is something where we'll never arrive. And it's not, it's not that we don't need experiences. It's not that we don't want to be thoughtful about experiences, But I call to mind just a conversation that I was having yesterday with a group in Leadership Global. And the woman from EMEA asked me, she said, well, I'm doing business with this very large organization uh, and they're headquartered in the United States. They're not very localized to Europe. And I keep answering these surveys and providing this feedback and the experience isn't changing. And so I asked her, is there a competitor that offers something similar, you know, where you could go purchase or form a relationship there? And she said, no. And I said, well, the experience is unlikely to shift then. I mean, there's not a catalyst for it. What you can do is shift some of the outcomes, but in that moment, you're kind of trapped, right? And I think for all of us, we need a catalyst out of this experience mentality to the outcome mentality to say, I think we need to put our focus in a different spot. 
because our customers certainly are. Jill, your response? Yeah, you know, I, I would agree with that. You know, focusing on that engagement on the customer side, listening to what they're experiencing and then applying that so that you improve your product, you improve your solution is hypercritical. Otherwise, your competition will outperform you every day. It's interesting. I, I interviewed your colleague, Matt Sweezy, a couple of weeks back, and we were talking about listening to the customer. And uh, he came back with what I can only describe as the best customer experience survey questions I've ever come across. And it's the third one that I think is fabulous. The first one is, what got you to this moment? The second is, did this experience meet your expectation? And the third, and this is the belter, have you seen better? And I think we need to invite criticism. We need to invite the unhappy, the disillusioned, uh, those who aren't quite satisfied to give us feedback. And certainly from your research, the indications are that if you speak to unhappy customers, your product development cycle is 600% faster. And I've always found that by speaking to people and catching them when they are unhappy in the early stage is much better than waiting until they fired you. So what, what I'm curious about is how leadership in large organizations are adapting when what made them successful is very difficult to let go of and they suffer from attachment. So Karen, your thoughts? It reminds me of the way that Marriott really made some shift in the way that they were connecting with customers because of exactly what you said. They found out, you know, they could send a survey to a guest after they exited a property and get this feedback. And then they could come together as a a leadership team at the property level, or, you know, you could roll this data up to the regional level or the corporate level and make some decisions about how to improve the experience in the future. And the one small shift they made that generated substantially positive results that I experienced myself, and I'll share with you a personal example, is they shifted to doing the survey when the guest was still on the property. And you may have experienced this when you go to log in to the internet and a Marriott property, most of the time now you'll get a little survey that's essentially like, how's your visit going? Is there anything we could do to make it better? Well, I remember that I was in a room where we've all had this one, right? It's it's the heater that sounds like there is an animal inside that is fighting with its last <laughs> breath to get out, right? It's that clang, clang, clang. And so I write in there, the heating unit is not working in my room and it's very loud. So to the degree that it disrupted my sleep. I sent the survey one hour later, I received a phone call and they said, you know, could we have, we saw your survey, we heard you, could maintenance come and take a look? And if we're not able to resolve it, we'd like to move you to another room so you can have a great experience because they discovered several things. If you can get the feedback and adjust in the moment, they ended up with much higher loyalty and satisfaction scores after the visit. The second is it shifted their management behavior to in the moment every day in their stand-up meeting celebrating what was going well for the guests that were on property at that given time and having their list of what they needed to address to give a guest a great experience before they left. They didn't change the survey that much per se in terms of the questions. And that was still the listening mechanism. What changed was when they deployed it so that they could have information and insights about their guests that were moving at the speed of need. You know, that they could make decisions at that point to adjust that experience 
And that that was very powerful in terms of customer loyalty and retention and perception about the visit. And in fact, their guests that had an ex- a bad experience ended up more satisfied after that had been addressed while they were there than those that had no issue at all during their stay. Again, very interesting. And I, I think there are a couple of really important points there that by moving the survey up, what they were able to do was deal with the issue and demonstrate that the guests had been heard. And I think this is one of the big problems that we see with a lot of customer satisfaction surveys, employee surveys. By the time the problems occurred and you're already 6,000 miles away, first of all, it doesn't improve your lot. And secondly, you never get to hear what they did to fix it. And I think that instant response is really important. Increasingly, what I'm seeing is the really smart marketing companies are beginning to recognize that the brain is basically a biochemical addict. And there's nothing it likes more than a biochemical reward. And it can be serotonin, dopamine, and oxytocin, or it can be adrenaline and cortisol. doesn't matter which, because frankly, it's just an addict. And as long as it gets a fix, the brain's pretty happy. But the smartest marketers that I know are really focused on creating that steady stream of dopamine hits, because... What that does is it creates happiness. It also triggers oxytocin uh, in the brain, uh, which starts to create an affinity between the brand and the customer in the same way that two human friends have. And that's incredibly powerful. But what I see, and again, Jill, I'd love to bring you in on this, is this ludicrous, I say ludicrous, maybe I'm being judgmental here, but I think I'm right, this uh, obsession with masses and masses of meaningless data that no one has a clue how to use. And all they're doing is they're just collecting and taking information. And then people are just befuddled by it. And you see marketing departments and procurement departments and sales teams and finance departments just brimming with data. And none of it's of any real value. What are your thoughts uh, in terms of what we need to do to uh, get down to the relevant data, and then exploit it positively. I would tend to agree with you, Marcus. I would challenge that there are probably a lot of golden nuggets in that data. It's just not mined properly, and people are not paying attention to what they should. And it's about being proactive, as Karen was just talking about, versus being reactive. Because if you're, you know, weeks, months, years out, and you know, you're buying the data or you're aggregating the customer data, you're a day late, a dollar short, usually. And if you're not paying attention and applying those learnings, shame on you. And you know, I've seen market research, you know, I've supported organizations for years spending tens of millions of dollars on buying data that they already could acquire for nothing from their customers real time and apply it. But to your point, Marcus, they're not listening. So they're losing that loyalty. They're losing that customer engagement and they're losing on innovating so that they could be ahead of the curve in their competition. So, you know, you've got to be proactive real time and you need to ask those provocative questions that you mentioned, you know, that Matt said on the podcast, because that's where you're going to differentiate yourself. You have to ask those tough questions. They may not feel good, but if you want to improve rather than just you know maintaining status quo or 
slowly losing your customers, you know, over the months and years, you, you have to be provocative and you have to be engaged and actually show that you care and show that, you know, you're listening. I'd add to that, you need to have some humility and vulnerability and invite the negative feedback and not be, and not take it personally. But uh, again, Karen, what I'd be really intrigued by is how you see new jobs evolving to fit into that space. Obviously, as the lead on voice of the customer, you've probably got better insight than most. So your thoughts? What I really am experiencing right now is organizations trying to create two things. One is someone who has relationship responsibility from the pre-sales to post-sales continuum in B2B organizations because so much friction, so much frustration happens in that in that switchover, in that implementation phase. And a number of organizations are experimenting with models to, to have someone be accountable and to close that gap. It's like, is this potentially friction and frustration that we could reduce, minimize, or eliminate? That's the first one. The second one is organizations are investing some time energy and effort from a voice of customer perspective to reimagine the waiting room and the lobby. And here's what I think about, you know, when you go to your doctor's office or you go to, you know, an office building, you're accustomed to, there's an area of entry, right? There's an area where you wait. And when you're in that space, there are a number of aspects of that brand and that experience that you're taking in, that you're interacting with. And so your point of entry into that organization used to be physical. And now what happens when your point of entry into that world is virtual? How do you reimagine? How do you make the most of that moment? And there was a healthcare organization that shared with me, they had formulated a new way to think about uh, the waiting room. And the way that they summarized it was, the patient will see you now. Right. So taking a play on that, the doctor will see you now where you've spent all this time waiting, like the waiting room sort of has a negative connotation, usually in a healthcare context. But now in this world of so much telemedicine or where we're trying to, you know, keep people distance, they use it as a tool to shift the mentality of thinking about being in service of your ultimate end user customer from their point of entry and shifting our mentality about how we see that as a moment of opportunity and part of the customer experience and brand experience. And it's driving some really big shifts in how they're reimagining other parts of their care and their practice. I just thought that was great because everyone can relate to it and remember it, right? The patient will see you now. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. So Jill, in terms of the ways that strategic procurement is collaborating with their partners, so with vendors who they treat as partners, what shifts are you seeing that have been catalyzed because of the pandemic? I think a lot more collaboration. And I'd like to back up for a second because I think having strategic procurement connected to sales, to the channel, to really understand what is driving the organization and where they're going is critical as they are then communicating with suppliers then they can represent what the expectations are, the strategic direction, and then have some of those difficult conversations 
and what they are seeing at other customers is really critical so that those suppliers are thinking outside of the box and not just taking orders from the organization. Because that's what I see, you know, kind of the behaviors, Marcus, you and I have talked about before. It's being proactive rather than reactive and bringing that product innovation, bringing that solution, bringing that service innovation to the forefront and then passing that through to the end customer is hypercritical. So it's it's having some of those difficult conversations that traditionally have not occurred from a supplier to procurement or to an internal stakeholder in the past. This is really interesting. A project I'm working on at the moment is creating a a virtual war room where the customer, the vendor, sales team, operations team, customer success team, marketing team, and the channel partners are all able to come together and collaborate uh, along the customer journey. Because again, I think most vendors operate on the basis that a founder creates a company eventually puts together a sales team and a marketing team. They produce a product and somewhere at the end is the customer. And my view is that we as a a community of providers need to be able to provide buyer safety. Mm -hmm. We have to be able to earn trust. We have to be relevant and be of service. And that means, and to touch on your point, Phil, we need to operate with rigorous authenticity. That means we have to be vulnerable enough to tell people, I don't know, or we may not be the right provider, but equally we need to be able to move into constructive conflict and uh, tell them about the things that have gone wrong and gone right. We need to communicate with clarity. We've got to be focused on the customer's success. And that means delivering their outcomes and surrendering ours. It means operating from a position of mutual respect and equal business stature and delivering win-win or no-deal outcomes. That means we have to roll up our sleeves and do the difficult work together in this collaborative environment as partners. But I just don't see that happening very often. There may be 2% of the vendors out there that really think like that. And probably only about half a percent of the salespeople on the planet, because most of them are still very, very transactional. And they're worried about hitting their quota, keeping their boss off their back and all that kind of stuff. So Karen, I'd love to bring you in on this. What do you think needs to change in the world of those who manage the customer journey? And I love the idea that one person is accountable throughout the life cycle. And it's not just the first transaction. It's, you know, it's selling 10, 15 years down the road. So I'd love your thoughts on that. I think about it in terms of a sliding glass door moment. I I heard somebody say one time, trust is earned in sliding glass door moments. It's that one moment where someone asks you a question, you know, a friend, a significant other, a boss, and you can like shift your answer ever so slightly to present a more desirable view of reality or of yourself. And in that moment, you're like shifting trust sort of in a direction that's not entirely favorable, right? And I think about this, like shifting the customer experience, understanding the customer experience, 
And that ultimate trust, that ultimate relationship happens in, in these micro moments, these little sliding glass door moments. And I think we need to think bigger and act smaller when it comes to what's happening with the way we design experiences and journeys, because the reality is it's a series of very small perceptions you know, that lead up ultimately to that experience. It's a series of micro moments and micro moves you can affect. And I'll give you an example. I must be thinking about traveling because I talked about Marriott. Now I'm going to talk to you about HomeAway. And one of the things that they realized is when people were going through their home rental experience and they were doing it on a mobile device, they were experiencing a higher than expected abandon rate versus if people were, were trying to book that same property on a desktop, laptop, et cetera. And so they decided to get curious and start studying it. And they realized that they could take away one click, one click out of that customer's mobile experience journey. And it took them less than a week to identify and remove that one click. And their conversion rate went up in the multi hundreds of percents in a very short period of time. That's it. It was one click. And so I think about it as like, what's your one click? It could be something so minor that you can adjust quickly that leads to that breakthrough of connecting back to the experience, continuing on the journey together. And in those micro moments, you know, that's when you can move the needle on perception quickly and more easily because we've all got less invested at that point, right? I mean, taking away one click, no one in the organization was going to stand up and say like, I demand we keep this click. I designed this click, attach this click. It's like, that's one click. I mean, okay, cool. Let's try it. And they did. And, and it proved to have substantial results. So I would come back to, you know, when you're thinking about your customer experience, or your customer experience journey, I mean, what's your one click? Let me then bring this back to you, Jill, because obviously you've sat on the buyer side of the desk mm-hmm. and there must have been the odd car crash when salespeople turn up. But I genuinely do not believe that most salespeople are bad human beings, despite mm-hmm. what McKinsey's study said that 67% of buyers consider sales to be morally bankrupt, sales and salespeople. That was in uh, late 2020. So what do you think we need to do to change the way we hire, onboard, compensate, and measure salespeople so that their focus is on the customer's outcome instead of keeping their job, making their quota, and uh, keeping their boss off their case? I think they have to have skin in the game with their customer. They need to stop selling their soul to meet sales quotas and to make you know the, the sales chain of command successful. They really need to understand deeply what success looks like for their customer. And they have to be willing, as you said earlier, Marcus, to say no if it's not a good fit. Dig deep. And if it's, you know, a 10-year customer and let's say they've been doing rebate processing, but that's not what is generating sales and that's not what is generating margin growth for their customers, their customers, you know, are not either cashing the rebates or they're not driving more sales. They need to have that difficult discussion and say, well, what are you, are you looking to gain, you know, market share? What are your strategic growth objectives and have that conversation? And that could risk them losing the business, but in the long term, they're helping the customer grow and think outside the box. And as a salesperson, 
you need to take a step back, understand, hey, what are the strategic objectives? What is the board asking for? What are investors looking for? What is the competition doing? And that is the type of competence that sales need to have, not just what do I need to do to close this deal, to check this box, to move to my next account? Um, those are all red flags to me. And that's not who I would trust. That's not who I like to do business with. That's not who I'm going to call and say, hey, what do you think about this? We're, we're thinking about moving in this direction. You want someone who's innovative and collaborative. I'm with you absolutely 100%. My one caveat, is that you need brave leadership to bring that into reality. So, Karen, how do we get leaders to let go of tradition, let go of being led by the nose uh, by the church of finance who seem to run everything, and the idea that, particularly for publicly listed companies, private companies, have absolutely no compulsion to operate on quarterly reporting, but many of them still do. For publicly listed companies, I get it because your share, you live or die by your share price. But what do we have to do to shift away from Friedman's utterly toxic idea that the shareholder is king and everyone has to worship at their altar? And for a leader to be brave enough to be able to make that shift, because I, I don't think it's more than a couple of quarters that it would take to take a massive competitive advantage over everyone else uh, who's carrying on in the old way. You may recall from the experience, the shift research that Matt Sweezy and I conducted that this experience is the new outcomes led to several organizations, or sorry, outcomes of the new experiences led several organizations to literally pivot their sales models, sales compensation, sales incentives to delivering customer outcomes, which was a big, bold move. And here's how they started small. They started with the professional services. And instead of delivering you know, a customer like a scope of work, they instead switched to here are the outcomes. Like here's a list of outcomes we've heard from you. And then here's what it's going to take to deliver that. And then people were paid on that. The success or failure and adjustments were based on that. They then extended that into their sales force. Now, I'm not suggesting that every single company overnight is going to make that kind of a, a shift immediately. What I would come back to is, if you're looking at the link between compensation outcomes and customer win rate, loyalty, retention, perception, whatever that might look like for you, what would happen if you gave that a try and where could you do a pilot? Because what started as the pilot with professional services ended up becoming a very successful a set of operating model shifts, but it started with proving what was possible with a small group where that made sense. You know, it was an area where they were already getting some feedback that customers weren't entirely satisfied or believing that they got to the outcomes that mattered to them. And so they used that as an opportunity to try to address a pain point. It then became their literal sales compensation model. So instead of having a, a quota, you have a quota of outcomes to deliver. Let, let me give a concrete example, real world. I interviewed uh, Patty Hatter from Palo Alto Networks. And in one quarter, by moving their professional services towards outcome-based pricing and outcome-based compensation, sales grew 93% for the year in one quarter. Now, it does work, but it takes 
courage and it takes a massive leap of faith initially. And like Karen said, if you start with your professional services, um, but then build that, because I, I think the compensation plans, and again, I think this would be a competitive differentiator, speaking to procurement, if they understood that your comp plan um, meant that um, the salesperson would make a small amount mm -hmm. on the initial transaction, they would make a significantly larger amount for optimizing utilization, for retention, and mm -hmm. for expansion. And everybody in the value chain gets rewarded for their part for delivering value to the customer and ensuring that the customer's outcomes are met. And the customer is the arbiter, whether you get paid that big fat bonus check, because the outcome that they wanted, they got. So your thoughts on that uh, uh, as a model or the beginnings of the model? I think it's that's the utopia, if you will. We have to get there. And, you know, procurement has a bad rap because they, you know, are notorious for oftentimes, you know, beating on price and, you know, not seeing the big picture, the future of procurement. And I think what COVID has highlighted is it's that value chain connectivity. You have to connect the dots. You have to have a sustainable business. You have to be innovative and differentiate yourself. When your suppliers have skin in the game and truly care about those outcomes, and to your point, are compensated as such, so they're not you know, getting a fat check, they're not going on a rewards trip until they see that full success of that implementation, of that solution, or of that product, that's where you will then see, hey, we have a long-term strategic partner here. They care about our business. They understand our business. They're saying no to some things and they're saying yes to other things where it was vice versa before. That's what you need to see. You can't just be a yes man. Otherwise, you know, you'll pay your bills today, but you're going to lose that business longer term because it's not sustainable. Well, it's really interesting Today, I'm interviewing a series of CXOs so that we can hold up the ugly mirror to bad sales. And what was really fascinating, and this is a theme from uh, at least a dozen of them that I've done, is that what they really care about are managing time, money, and risk. And they want to know that if they make a decision, that you can allay their potential future regret and blame. So they want to know that you're there to hold their hand, which then speaks to Karen's point that someone has to be accountable throughout the life cycle. And I think one of the most important things that we can do to shift the way sales is run is we need to get away from this whole idea of hunter and farmer. And whilst there is a place, maybe if you are a transactional business, almost nobody in the enterprise space is buying transactionally. There are lots of people attempting to sell transactionally, but they're not necessarily very good at uh, what they're doing. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to prioritize what they purchase because they're looking for benefit today, but they're looking for the gains and the outcomes tomorrow. They want to make sure that they're not making a bad decision. And too few salespeople are contextually aware of what it's really like to occupy those senior positions. And 
Well, in your uh, research, Karen, I'm really curious to find out what sort of feedback you're getting about the lack of business acumen within the sales community and the marketing community, because it's it's painfully apparent from where I sit. But if you're a CXO or a CPO, you must be just thinking, why am I sitting through yet another PowerPoint of someone's HQ? <laughs> yes, yes. I When you said that, what it sparked for me is when you show up with the corporate pitch, it's because you, doesn't, you don't know your customer well enough to show up with a customized pitch. So in thinking in that direction, you know, we're all considering, I think, who is our customer now and who are the new buyers and influencers and decisions now. And as part of that, you know, we need to take a pause and consider how well we know the use cases we're selling to and solving for at this point in the journey. And I'll use Salesforce as an example. We came out during the pandemic with two products that were not previously on the roadmap. The reason is to create some products to help organizations and governments and communities and educational institutions have some tools they need from a technology perspective to effectively manage through the pandemic, whether that's crisis communication, contact tracing, vaccinations, et cetera. Well, within doing that, and it's had wonderful resonance and reach, What we discovered is there's a new buyer for us in that mix, and it's chief HR officers and HR leaders. The other ways that we have gone to market don't as frequently include meeting with and selling to the HR officer, much less knowing their needs or the use cases that we're explicitly trying to design for. And so, you know, we've come to the discovery for us to do a better job of equipping our customer facing teams. We need to take a pause and really deeply engage and understand that community. And that the next best action we can take after that understanding is to build some compelling thought leadership that creates resonance and a framework to have a conversation with this new buyer and to articulate use cases that matter to them right, what they're solving for and speak to their decision criteria. So I use Salesforce as an example, just to say, hey, it's a great behavior of a business to move with speed and capture an opportunity to bring a new product to market that's very timely. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, that product has a buyer. Our discovery was we don't know that buyer as well as we might have thought, buyer or influencer. And we need to not only get an understanding, but institutionalize access to that understanding to facilitate a better customer conversation. Very interesting. Okay, this then raises another very interesting observation. One of my clients is a company called White Rabbit Intel, and um, they're an AI that looks at your data, helps you to sift out the 90% who are not going to buy and identify those who are most likely to buy. And one of the biggest insights that people get when they run the data is how off their ICP, their ideal customer profile or halo customer is. And when they run the data on a monthly basis, they find that the halo customer shifts subtly over time. I mean, you've highlighted it there that you know there's a, there's a new kid on the block. But often what is lacking are the questions that we need to be asking ourselves about, well, what's changed? How has our customer circumstance changed? So the outcomes that we're offering today are no longer relevant 
And I think often what happens is we fall foul of the immediate pressure, the immediate pressure to hit our number or to get this deal in because we're behind on quota and we'll do anything to uh, make the number. Often we'll feel pressure from our management to pressure customers to buy before they're ready. And I think where people go wrong is they don't really understand that buying is really just selling from the other side of the table. So all too often, um, what we're seeing is there's the default setting is then to default to price, or it's not a good way to either buy or sell because the customer doesn't get the outcome that they really want. And you see this way too often where people have bought and then they kind of regret it and then they're stuck in a contract. I remember I worked in media for many years and uh, I remember hearing on more than one occasion, you're never more than three years from being fired by a client. (laughs) I mean, what a terrible philosophy. If that's how you think about your relationship with your customer, how are you going to keep them for 15, 20, 30 years? And how is that a motivating sense of purpose? I mean, do you want to wake up every day and like that job? I mean, I don't. I mean, Jill, do you want that person with that mindset to come call on you and be like, Jill, let's make a deal? Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. they'll be looking to squeeze you for the most you can in the three years. Mm-hmm. And they're just waiting to get fired. So if that's the case, why on earth would you transact with them in the first place? They have blinders on anyway, so they're not seeing the big picture. Okay, so Jill, let's explore where work will be conducted in the future. Um, In the preamble to this, we were talking about uh, how we wouldn't necessarily want to be renting uh, renting out office space, but if you had a lot of money, you'd probably want to buy office space Mm -hmm. so you can convert it to residential. How do you see the shift in terms of location of the future of work? I think what the pandemic has taught us is work can be done anywhere. So the old notion of butts and seats, I need to you know, take a, an inventory of, of who's come into the office when they've clocked in, it's really shifted to outcomes. So it doesn't matter if you're sitting on the beach, it doesn't matter if you're sitting at you know, a baseball game, If you're delivering results and you're innovative about how you're doing it, usually what I have found having managed a virtual team on every continent for the last 10 plus years, I have never really kept tabs. It's all about, you know, the outcomes, not when they're working or how they're working because everyone is unique. So I think leaders need to take a step back and figure out how do I incentivize this innovation, this collaboration, the optimal productivity in a way that's motivating and is in a way that's advancing the strategic direction of the company. I think you've got to set that ground rule. Those need to be the table stakes and then figure out, okay, if there is a a big initiative do I need to bring people together? How do I bring them together, you know, for those whiteboarding sessions, for, you know, those, you know, um, brainstorming sessions? Um, but I can tell you and I can attest, 
some of the best ideas, you know, some people say it's in the shower, you know, it could be during a workout, it could be while you're out getting fresh air, it could be while you're driving and running errands, you know, the best ideas come to people at different times before bed. Um, so I think we, we really need to be flexible and respectful of people's time because the notion of this work-life balance, it's all about prioritization. I don't believe in balance because work is all consuming um, at all times. And it, we're thinking about it at one point in time during the day or another. And it's usually, you know, at a time where you shouldn't be thinking about it. You could be pouring a glass of wine and then something just pops into your head that, you know, is the, the next best um, project idea or direction, strategic direction. I normally find that my best ideas happen at the most inconvenient moment Yes, <laughs> uh, when I can't make a note. So I've forgotten more great ideas than I've ever written down. But Karen, as a best-selling author of Working From Home, I'd be really curious about your take. Who working from home really suits? Because motivation, I think, is a massively misunderstood element of human behavior. And often what we see is someone who's motivated by money thinks that having a sales competition where there's a cash prize at the end of it will motivate behavior. But actually, what it, all it does is disincentivize 90% of your sales force because the same person wins it every time. So I'm curious your thoughts about how working from home acts as a motivator or a demotivator. Working from home when it's by choice or by organizational design rather than by pandemic. Like, so let's call it massively motivating force uh, that, that put everyone into that, that experiment. But when that is a part of an organization's culture where working from home or working from anywhere is not just something that's accepted, it's something that's allowed and truly embedded in the culture. What it really speaks to is one of the most powerful forces in business, which is trust. And I think trust is the greatest manager to employee motivational tool ever created. Because what it says is, you know, I am going to articulate to you the outcome or outcomes that you are expected to deliver. And then I am going to trust that you can make choices about when you need to work, where you need to work, and who you need to work with in order to realize that outcome. And so the organizations that are revisiting the lines on ownership are the ones that are succeeding in this distributed work model and will continue to do so. And, you know, part of that, I think, speaks to what, what all humans really want, which is autonomy. The trust is so key. And I think, you know, thinking and acting like an owner. So having been an entrepreneur while working in the corporate world, when you empower people with the trust, with the autonomy, and with the outcomes and an incentive plan that, hey, what you do has a direct impact, not just on your salary, but on the company's success and how innovative we are, how respected the brand is, that's the true differentiator. And people want to be owners. They want to have skin in the game, to care about the company, people who like to work for your company and they have that ownership, you will see results on a whole new level that you've never seen before. This then raises another very difficult and thorny question. 
the SRC did a research study tail end of 2020. And one of the most disturbing findings, but honestly, I'm amazed it's that high, is that only 6% of sales managers globally are fit for purpose. So let that sink in for a moment. I think there are a number of critical issues that we need to really bear in mind. A chap called Tegze from IBM did a study on the reasons why people left. I think he's an in-house recruiter. And the number one reason was a lack of opportunities to use their skills and abilities. Next was excessive work or too little of it. Bad management actually came surprisingly low down the, uh, the, the seven or eight. Toxic workplace or co- company culture, promotional opportunities, higher salary and financial stability were important, but they were very middling, and inadequate or lack of rewards and benefits, particularly stuff that looked after their families. Now, I think one of the challenges here is that the route to management certainly in sales, is a very dodgy and thorny one. Because normally what happens is you get tapped on the shoulder and told, Karen, your idiot boss has just been fired. Congratulations, you're now the idiot boss. And that's your runway. And the skill set, the temperament, the motivation to be a manager has to be that you want your team to succeed. You're okay taking a pay cut and being the lowest paid person on your sales team, knowing that you're helping your salespeople massively achieve their number, but also that they're doing work that they were put on the planet to do. Again, in other fields, you might have a different runway, but certainly within sales, there isn't really a good management track. What do you reckon needs to change so that sales management is fit for purpose? The success or failure of sales managers is the same as what it will be for organizations that succeed or fail in the new world of work and at distributed work, which is middle managers. We must focus on this layer of people between the senior executives and the individual contributors. So much is resting on them. And we spend so little time, energy, and effort selecting them, training them, aligning them with a sense of purpose that's greater than endlessly filling out the next sales report and letting you know what we're going to sell in the next five minutes or what we sold in the last five minutes or how the quarter on forecast is looking. I think for lots of individuals, it happens sort of how you said, you know, I, I want to go to the next step in my career. That means I go from salesperson to sales manager. And, you know, upon entering that sales manager role, one of the great ironies is probably the part that made them fantastic and helped them get, get promoted is the muscle that they at least get to flex now. Because you're spending less time with customers and suddenly we're, we're asking you to be articulate and use a set of muscles that you've never built. And by the way, we didn't get you a membership to a gym. So how do we think you're ever going to get fit in that role? Jill, your experience where you know that the, managers, uh, the manager is great, what's that like being on the buyer side of the desk versus where uh, you have an over-promoted manage, uh, salesperson in a management role? Yeah, I think it's exactly what Karen just said. It's understanding the customer. So the more time you spend with customers, the closer you are to their business, understanding what their priorities are, understanding the strategic direction, that's the key to success. And the further you are from that, 
the more time you are spent running reports, selling your soul to management, you know, worshiping the meetings that are, you know, slammed on your calendar, the less innovative, the less outcomes you'll see a decline in, you know, those results. And I think it's it's got to be around understanding those strategic priorities and asking the customers those tough questions, not just nodding your head, not just showing up to meetings, not just doing what you've always done. You know, you have got to stick your neck out and differentiate yourself from the competition. I'm really disappointed that we've hit the top of the hour and I don't want to overstay my welcome. So I'm going to finish on one question, which is, so Karen, tell me, what's the best mistake you have ever made? And what did you learn from it? The best mistake I've ever made is taking a sales leadership role with the belief that it would be a great opportunity to do more of what I was doing as a salesperson, just even better with more of an impact. What I discovered along that way of that journey, which was, it was a very surprising discovery is that there are opportunities to create and connect. And even in a sales manager role, see the link between what you do and the outcome that you're delivering with your team. I think you just have to be purposeful about constructing what that looks like so that you know what your role is, you know, in delivering that ultimate outcome. Excellent. Thank you. And Jill, same question. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's really sitting alongside your team. So you can be in a leadership role. Don't be a figurehead. Be a player coach. Know, you know, what they're facing. And, you know, the, the best success that I've seen is pulling, you know, my team along with me. We taught our channel team uh, in my most recent role in the corporate world, the strategic um, account executives and the channel team, what procurement did. We, we were brought into deals. We coached them on how to negotiate with our customers. That was so rewarding. Then we were brought in regularly to train you know, new key account executives. And they saw significant margin improvement. They stopped discounting. Customers were happier. They said, who the hell have you been talking to? You're actually listening to us now. So it was a real differentiator and bringing, I didn't do it by myself because it was my team. It's being, you know, that player coach working alongside them and then delivering those strategic outcomes for the business. And that's where you have fun um, when you're making a difference. For me, I think one of the best lessons I've learned, and it's from a lifelong mistake. When I first started out, I was always trying to work out how to do stuff. And as I've got older and lazier, I've realized the better question is who. You can get a hell of a lot more done if your first question is who knows the how. For me, that's been an absolute game changer. I get more done in a week than most people do in a quarter because of that uh, shift. Okay, how can people get hold of you? Karen? You can find me on Twitter at Karen Manji and also on LinkedIn. And I regularly publish new content and ideas on both. Excellent. Jill? Jill at businessfierce.com and on LinkedIn. And I'm regularly um, posting content, um, coaching 
on sales and how to properly interact with procurement so that you can elevate your selling game. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Great to be here. Excellent. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And do give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. You go onto the Apple app, scroll down about half a page, and then you can say whatever rude things you like about the podcast. One star or five stars, really not fussed, just want honest reviews. Now, if you're the owner or CEO of a tech company turning over somewhere between 10 and 50 million, and your goal is to grow your business and achieve real, sustainable hypergrowth with highly engaged and highly productive employees who do not get burnt out and don't feel the need to be disloyal, and customers who stick with you year after year after year and bring their wealthy friends, then let's schedule time for a brief conversation. You can reach me at marcus at laughs-last.com or direct message me on LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Thanks. Bye-bye.